My name is Vivian Akiwandi. I live in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. About 40 years ago, I came from Nigeria. 2020 is a scary year. It's a strange year for the whole entire years that I live. I don't think any year is like 2020 to me. When they bombed the Trade Center that year, you remember, September 11, that came all of a sudden. It shook everybody up. Everybody was scared. But when everything is done, it's done. But this COVID is just prolonging. We are just hoping we don't catch it. This is Bumi Akinisotu, and you are listening to What in the World, a podcast that makes U.S. foreign policy understandable and relevant to your everyday life. And we amplify the voices of women and experts of color. This show is also a proud member of the Diversity and National Security Network, so be sure to check them out at diversitynationalsecuritynetwork.com. That was my mother, Phoebe Akinwande, who is a certified nursing assistant sharing how she feels about 2020, which I'm sure you all can relate to as well. You'll hear more from her a little later on in the show. What in the world tends to explore policy issues like elections in other countries and trade beasts and NATO. But for this episode, I'm doing something just slightly different. You see, behind every policy is a person a person or a group of people who are doing some research or writing policies. And then there are people who are affected by those policies. So I'm getting personal and presenting three women who embody these perspectives and whose experiences are connected, though they've never actually met each other. These three women are leading from where they are, despite the world being an entire mess. Dr. Tanner Vinema, an internationally celebrated scientist and professor of nursing at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, created an app so that nurses working on the front lines of a disaster have information at their fingertips. Every day, Dr. Vinema shows up to educate nurses and other healthcare professionals who are fighting COVID-19 all over the world. Dr. Vinema, what is disaster nursing and how does it differ from say, non-disaster nursing? I think a lot of people don't really understand or appreciate what disaster nursing is or what nurses do during disaster and public health emergencies, such as the COVID-19 pandemic. So we like to say that disaster nursing is every nurse's subspecialty, meaning that no matter where you work or what your educational background or your clinical expertise is, when we have something of the scope of uh, a global pandemic, it's really required an all-hands-on-deck type of approach to respond to it. Whether they're C-suite recognized leaders or whether they're unit managers or community and public health nurses, nurses working in home care or palliative care, we have stepped up to the demand of this sudden unanticipated surge for care. And tell me, how did you get to this interest of disaster nursing? What led you here? Why? Because it seems like it's intense. So 
when I was 15 years old, I volunteered in an emergency department in Hartford, Connecticut at Mount Sinai Hospital. And even as a volunteer, before I had even finished high school, I fell in love with emergency healthcare services, the constant change and challenge, and that ability to be there when people really needed you during times of crisis. Certainly when 9-11 occurred and the October 2001 anthrax outbreak, I was teaching in a school of nursing and had been writing about the importance of nurse preparedness and our ability to respond to, at that time, chemical and biological and radiation emergencies. And I think it just um, kind of exploded from there in terms of just my interest as a scientist and as an educator, as well as a nurse practitioner responding to these types of events. And so what's one thing that you would say people don't know about disaster nursing that they should, because you've mentioned some really critical events that I think we all can relate to from a personal perspective. And we think of emergency responders, we think of firefighters, certainly in the case of 9-11, there's not a lot that I'm aware of that happens behind the scenes. The most important thing is that These are really different types of events that require us to change the way we think about rendering healthcare and how we respond to them. So I'm, you know, we differentiate between an emergency and what's really a disaster. So we experience a lot of emergencies in this country, whether it's a single family home fire or perhaps an automobile accident involving cars and a school bus. But we are able to respond to those types of events because we have adequate resources to do so. Something like a major hurricane or our, our current pandemic, these are really catastrophic events where the demand for healthcare and the demand on our emergency response systems exceeds our availability and our capacity to respond. And it requires us to respond in very different ways. So certainly, for example, this year, faced with a global pandemic, where here in the United States, we've experienced the worst outcomes of any developed nation, where we have over 210,000 preventable deaths, things like the implementation of widespread public health disease containment strategies, such as mandatory mask wearing, social distancing, increased hygiene and hand washing, those things become critical for us to be able to manage this type of catastrophic event. How do you talk about change or how do you coach in terms of getting people to adjust to these issues um, that you said are are oftentimes unpredictable and, and they're so different from one another? I'm very fortunate. Since April 1st of this year, I've been working with colleagues at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg Center for Health Security. I work with just some amazingly smart, talented people, and they also help me as I formulate my thoughts, as I work with different nursing organizations and schools of nursing and individual nurses and physicians and hospital administrators. When we have a situation such as a disaster or a public health emergency, clear, transparent communication based on the science 
and ongoing communication so that people understand what is happening and to help them interpret it so it has meaning for their own life. As a scientist, I gather data and try to learn more about what's working in our response and what isn't, and then translate that information to nurses, nurse educators, administrators, nursing students, so that we can really empower our profession to stay safe and take those actions that are really going to help with this response. I love the way you phrased the idea of being transparent and having clear communication with people. My mother is a certified nursing assistant and she takes care of the elderly. One of the challenges that we had was there was a lot of information out there about how this thing was being spread, about safety, about... So there was just so much early on that we didn't know. And my mother did what she could to just keep herself safe and her patients safe. I want to ask you, when you're faced with a lot of information that's conflicting or that isn't clear or isn't tested or we're unsure, what goes through your mind in terms of how to articulate a clear direction forward? Sure. First of all, my admiration for your mother and her service throughout this pandemic to care for older uh, individuals who we know are at high risk and high vulnerability. So I, I want to acknowledge her work. I also want to say that when we're faced with overwhelming information during an event that is highly ambiguous and chaotic at best, it really behooves us all, again, to search for the science. So when I look at a lot of evidence or guidelines or studies or news reports, I really try to look at what is the source of that data? Is it reliable? Do I trust it? Do they present me with the methods of how they gather that data or came to that conclusion. Our pandemic has been complicated this year by misinformation and a lot of myths and conspiracy theories and all kinds of really garbage information that has served to confuse not only the American public, but even people in the healthcare system who are really trying to make sense of what's going on and how can they protect themselves in order to protect their patients, families, and communities. So if anything, I think one of the major lessons that's going to come out of this year is the importance of science and trusting science. Our public health officials, led by Dr. Anthony Fauci, have been working tirelessly throughout this pandemic to provide clear, valid, reliable scientific guidance, and we'd all do well to pay attention to it. I totally agree with you. And if Dr. Fauci is listening to this, good work, sir. And likewise, Dr. Vinima, this is a, a lot of work and I commend you for, for everything that you're doing to make sense of this information. You developed an app on this topic of data. You developed an app called Disaster Nursing. What prompted the development of this uh, that app was produced in collaboration with a company called Unbound Medicine in Charlottesville, Virginia, that is recognized for really producing high quality digital resources for healthcare providers. Throughout my work, I've always seen gaps where information was missing and tried to fill those gaps. It became clear that nurses were not simply caring 
books around in their pockets anymore <laughs> or their briefcases. And in order to meet that need for real-time, scientifically driven evidence in a digital resource, I worked to develop the Disaster Nursing app. It covers over 404 different types of disaster events and infectious disease emergencies. And of course, we've added a number of new topics based on so many events that have occurred over the past five years since we originally produced it. Nice. And so the nurses um, or medical staff can use this app basically to monitor what's happening with a particular emergency or disaster. It sounds like it's like a, uh, a digital like wallet, like it's right there. They can look up things immediately and get real time information. I wanted to do was put this information right in the hands of the provider at the point of care. So whether you're a nurse in the ICU taking care of a patient who had been a victim of a chemical explosion, or whether it was in management of a COVID-19 patient, and what are the current strategies for doing that, things have changed. We have learned a lot from April uh, and early May as the clinical information and the pharmaceuticals have advanced in our progress towards fighting this horrible virus. I want to make sure that nurses have that information immediately, that there's no lag time in getting quality science to the nurses who need it. I love it. I want to switch for a second to the human aspect and the nurses um, and all of the professionals that you work with and you speak to on a daily basis. What is what would you say is the most common concern that disaster nurses have as they're dealing with this pandemic? I would say that what I hear over and over again is concerns regarding staffing. It's certainly been a concern for hospitals and healthcare organizations, whether you're a federally funded community health center or you're a small rural hospital. <laughs> this COVID pandemic has really created a huge burden on the healthcare workforce. And because of that, and as we are moving into fall and winter with serious concerns about a second or third wave of this, as we watch the numbers increase in over 22 states, staffing models are a big concern. And just really knowing, will we have the critical care and nursing capacity that we needed? So how does the work that you do translate globally? And are we bringing in information that is helping us with our staffing models or with the issues that we see here in the United States? Oh, absolutely. I was very fortunate uh, to be awarded a Fulbright Scholar Award and worked in Ireland and the School of Medicine there. And I was able to conduct countrywide analysis of their emergency healthcare workforce and emergency services capacity to respond to a large-scale mass casualty event. Well, that type of workforce health systems analysis translated very well back to this year and the work that I've been doing in terms of optimizing health systems and strengthening the healthcare workforce during the pandemic response. I learned so much from my wonderful international nursing colleagues. We all benefit when we learn from each other 
earlier on this year, we saw the struggles of the Italian nurses when they had that surge early on. And I think there were direct lessons learned for U.S. nurses based upon their experience. And even now, as we watch numbers go up in France, in Spain, in the U.K., in Israel, in India, those are all lessons learned for us. Awesome. Awesome. Well, it's really great that that global perspective still matters and that amongst the scientific community, at least, there seems to be a much more unification and a positive diplomatic energy and making sure that we all get through this together and learn from one another. Who is a leader that you admire and why? Oh, my goodness. There are so many of them. (laughs) Certainly, I have to go back to Dr. Fauci right now, who's been a stalwart throughout this. And I just love his unwavering commitment to science to drive public health policy in order to save lives. And that honest, transparent, ongoing communication, I think, has been just marvelous. I've seen incredible nursing leadership throughout this. You know, I've had the great pleasure to work with uh, Dr. Deborah Troutman at the American Association of Colleges of Nursing. I've uh, had the opportunity to work with Dr. Marianne Alexander at the National Council of State Boards. And there's so many deans. I mean, just a lot of really strong leadership throughout this pandemic. And I believe that that type of leadership and again, that unwavering commitment to saving lives. And at the same time, as nurses, we've needed to be flexible, nimble, able to pivot quickly. I, again, am just very grateful to the Center for Health Security because since the 1st of April, I've been able to devote 100% of my time to the COVID-19 response and doing everything I can to help out. And that's been a great honor and a privilege for me. And I'm so glad you're a leader in that position doing that important work. This is a foreign policy podcast um, where we talk about issues related to national security. Usually it's trade and sanctions and war. And what's concerning me is America's sort of reputation and position in the world, given how we've managed this crisis. How is your view about the United States' leadership changed given the pandemic? Or has it changed? That is a million dollar question. And I think (laughs) to help put it into context for some of your listeners, the United States is currently at war. We are at war with this virus. It has attacked so many Americans. And we we certainly see the mortality, but the long-term morbidity in terms of people who will be suffering from the impact of infection with SARS-CoV-2 has yet to be seen. And that also impacts our health security as a nation when you have so many uh, citizens within a nation who have been afflicted by an illness and when so much of our resources are now diverted to have to fight that, that war. I have seen a glaring lack of national leadership throughout this. I think many people would share that observation with me in terms of the ability from the federal government to say, this is what's happening. This is our plan. These are the activities we will roll out. We have, we have not had that. And because of that, governors across all 50 states have been forced to handle things 
based on their own resources and their own understanding of the pandemic. And so what we've seen, given that we have 50 different states or 50 different responses to this type of, mm. of virus, mm. I do think internationally, I mean, I'm not a, 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 an inter international policy scholar, but I can only imagine that watching the response that we have mobilized to this horrible, horrible pandemic um, has left many countries questioning our, our current administration and the direction of our future policies. Yeah, I agreed on all fronts. And um, I love the way you frame this. America is at war. And we, I, I, I have not heard that phrase, that phrasing. Usually when we hear that, it's in context of another country, um, but you so eloquently phrased it in terms of this, this public health disaster. So thank you for that. And, and, and that's a very clear connection to me. What has been the greatest lesson you've learned thus far in the last six or seven months that we've been going through this? I think it's just reinforced, again, the importance of staying flexible and nimble and having courage. This has been a terrible year for so many individuals and so many families. There has been such significant loss, whether it's in unemployment, family-owned businesses, families who've lost their loved ones or close friends, healthcare institutions that have been challenged like they've never been before. And of course, I think we've seen just this growing mental health burden across the United States as people yeah. struggle with depression and anxiety because there's so much that still remains unknown. I just really am reinforced by the need to stay committed to see this through again, to follow the science and to try to have courage. I love it. Absolutely. Courage is so important. It's one of the critical pillars of leadership, I think, and certainly disaster nurses and all of those healthcare professionals are some of the most courageous people that I come across on a regular basis in my family. What is keeping you in a good mood when you feel like it's just too much? Uh, well, my children, my grandchildren, my friends, my wonderful nursing colleagues that I work with, my colleagues at the Center for Health Security. I think at the end of the day, it's people that make life worth living. And so the more we can try to stay in touch and close to people, even when we have to socially distance, those are the things that will help get us through. I will say I was born to be a leader. Some of my brothers that appreciate me and they will tell me, sister, you are good leader. You are good leader. You just know what to do and what to say to bring peace. <laughs> Everybody have some ounces of kindness in them. But some of us, kindness doesn't come easy from them. You just have to find a way of drawing it out of them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Este es el sonido de una sirena de emergencia en contracosta. La sirena es simplemente una alerta advirtiendo que hay un posible peligro en su área. El sonido de la sirena se escucha el primer miércoles de cada mes a las 11 de la mañana.
Have you ever wondered who is behind those emergency alerts? Who is typing those text messages or interpreting all of that information? Grelia Steele is one of the many voices of local emergency managers in Fairfax County, Virginia, keeping the public informed of what is going on in the event of an emergency or disaster. Si una sirena suena en cualquier otro momento, resguárdese, cierre y escuche. After 9-11, Grelia, like many, made it her life's work to prepare communities for the worst. Because of her, our grandparents know where to find health care. And the neighborhood grocery store owner who speaks Spanish, he or she can find the financial resources they need to stay afloat. Grelia's job is to ensure that we stay ready so we don't have to get ready when a disaster strikes. Y de televisión para información oficial e instrucciones. Tell us, what is it that you actually do and what does it mean in terms of emergencies? My role in emergency management as the community outreach manager, I'm in charge of making sure that we have programs in place to prepare and to make sure that our residents know how to receive information. The mission of our group is to ensure that we tailor each program that we have at the county government to meet the needs of our population. I go out to the community and I talk to people. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And would you say that it was your family that led you to this work or what exactly led you to want to work in the disaster and emergency management space? It was right after 9-11. I had just graduated from high school and I was looking for something to be able to give back to my country. I saw the first responders running into the scene and it wasn't until my second year of college when a friend of mine showed me some of the material that from a class he was taking. And he said, look, we're reading about 9-11 and the report. And so I said, I remember sitting in my, in my apartment then, and I read the 9-11 report cover to cover. And I said, okay, I need to find out more. And I need to know how this fits in my mission to give back to my country. Mm-hmm. And soon after I enrolled uh, to the Homeland Security Emergency Preparedness Program, then started right after college, I started as a part-timer with the Arlington County Office of Emergency Management. That's where one of the attacks happened. And so little by little, I started meeting folks that I was reading about in college. And so that was way more impactful. And what I saw was this void of preparedness. At that time, there was a void of communication with the public. There was a void of given incentives to communities to prepare for a disaster. And right now, COVID is a great example of that happening. So I developed a canvassing model where I recruited volunteers and those volunteers would go out door to door and they would inform people on how to prepare to them about shelter operations that a lot of people, especially in the immigrant community, you talk about shelters, you say, no, thank you. I'm going to my friend's house or I'm going to my auntie's house. It's building that trust. What is one thing that people don't know that they should? about emergency preparedness? 
It's that we're in their backyards. A lot of folks think of emergency management, one, maybe as those that are affiliated with um, the 911 center. Because a lot of times when I say, I'm an emergency manager, oh, okay, so you answer <laughs> calls. No, not quite. Or they affiliate us uh, directly with FEMA. And so that's where I start my conversation and letting people know this is what I do. So I'm your local FEMA, but not really. (laughs) It's the concept of we are in your backyard. We are inside your community and we are there to be able to coordinate all the resources within your community so that in times of a disaster, We are the ones that are gluing all the pieces together. We're the folks behind the scenes. Yeah. Local alerts are the ones that are being written by folks like myself and other colleagues that are inside of that incident that have all the details and all the information that will help you Mm -hmm. uh, make that better decision. So walk us through the perfectly prepared government response. And I know that's a huge question because there's, all kinds of disasters and emergencies that can come up and and whatnot. But you've read the 9-11 Commission report from front to back. Yeah. You've talked to all of the amazing people who learned from that experience. And I'm sure right now with COVID, you're also gathering lots of knowledge. So what in your mind is the perfectly prepared government look like? It's the government that thinks of the needs of their community. So how do we do that? It's by having the knowledge of the composition of your community. And having that conversation is going outside of your doors. And think of those that are dependent on public transportation, those that have access and functional needs, then you are able to come up with solutions. Your work deals with groups of people within a community who may be forgotten. And those are people, um, you've hinted at it, like people who use public transportation or the elderly. So in your work, you deal with language access. What kinds of issues have you been seeing in the COVID environment as it relates to language access and making sure people have just like the information they need in the language that they understand. I've heard stories of small business owners that have gone into bankruptcy or have lost their businesses because they did not understand or did not know the information we were sharing. Mm -hmm. With all of that's happening, we have to make a shift. We have to be able to develop our, our strategies that not only translate the information, because that is not the answer, I know that the information that I relate to the Hispanic population needs to fit culturally. Exactly. It is not translate word by word. And it's not the, just the, uh, not just the translation, but it's not the, it needs to fit and it needs to resonate. Mm -hmm. Otherwise it just, it's information that they read and that they don't understand. And then they move on. Every person that comes to me for advice on translation is one, verify the translation with native speakers. That's something that we've learned the hard way. Yes, yes. 
And then two is to ensure that, again, it fits culturally. And one thing that I remember from a professor in University of Colorado Boulder, his name is Dennis Mildy, is that he mentions whenever we write a message from government or an alert, it needs to be written as if you were talking to your mom. It needs to be simple. It needs to be actionable. And it really needs to resonate that trust. You have to be able to convey that trust and that action so that a person reading it can act on it like that versus yeah. just putting it to the side or muting it. There's a lot of information that gets swirled around. I and mean, there's a lot of mistrust about the government. I was reading something in a McKinsey report that talked about levels of trust of various stakeholders in public health. There were the doctors, there was local government, federal government, the media. Federal government was the least trusted. And then just a few notches above that were like the state and local officials. How do you as a community engagement professional make sense of the plethora of information that comes at you? And how do you ensure that the information you're receiving is trustworthy? Because you then have to communicate that out to, as you said, like a public that may already have questions. We vet all the information and we make sure that it is credible before we even put it on our reports to our internal agencies and external partners. And before we disseminate it to the public, we have to make sure that we do that. We develop plans and exercise, again, based on what could, what if, the what if situation. And I think that another reason why I'm drawn to this work is because I can sit with you and talk to you about the what ifs all night long. We do so many checks before we release any information. We get on the phone. That's the other thing about trust and building relationships is that I've had to pick up the phone so many times during this incident and ask for favors mm. to our partners. And I am happy. And, you know, that's one thing that I'm, I'm so grateful about is that I have not heard a no. And that's because I, as a person of community, as a person of the, the beliefs and trust and, and relationship building, I've dedicated so much time to not just stay within my boundaries of Fairfax County, but really think global and think of all of my partners. Two years ago, I developed a, a relationship with those from the World Bank because I needed to feed off information from my global partners to see what they're doing outside of the, the, the U.S. What, what is you know, the Caribbean doing in, in terms of preparedness, what is um, Europe doing in terms of preparedness? And so I attended an event and I met the person that is in charge of global disaster. And guess what? We invited him to come to our facility and we trained together. We trained their folks trained us. And that's the thing I have to meet folks from not just the county level and be able to learn from them so that I can act at the local yeah. level and be able to provide that impact. What are some of the critical, maybe two critical leadership skills necessary to be a successful emergency 
manager and particularly doing the work that you do in community? One is follow through, follow through, follow through. Being able to do that follow-up the very next day, if not the same day, it's critical. As emergency managers, we have to be that type A personality where we grab something and we do it. The other piece is being able to speak in public and be able to being able to relay our information in a way that is that is common, that not the all the jargon of all the technical <laughs> information and we know that front and back, but being able to translate that to just common language. I often sit and, and listen to to different presentations or read reports that is just all technical. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to sit there and say, okay, how do I translate this? It's not I'm not translating it to any other language except just making it just common language so that the average person can understand because otherwise that information and that knowledge just sits with us. Yeah. And we can't have that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that way about foreign policies. You had said you reached out to the Caribbean, you reached out to the World Bank, which I think is super, is super cool. Give me an example of a situation, a disaster or an emergency where you were like, oh crap, I don't know what to do. Or we didn't think about this situation. What do we do? Has that ever happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it happens. Six months ago, uh, at the start of COVID, it, it happened when we were starting to develop our, our strategy. I turned to my director and said, okay, so are we going online and how soon are we going online? And I heard from um, my colleague who said, what do you mean online? Every emergency manager operates in a disaster inside of what is called an emergency operations center. So it is a coordination center that has, it's basically a huge computer lab where you have your subject matter experts from all levels of county government. So you have your communication, your public health, your folks from your uh, purchasing, all of your members that are there physically so that we can all coordinate. So imagine taking all of that knowledge and that being accustomed to that and having to switch that online. We did it. However, it took time and it took a lot of getting used to, a lot of trust to trust for our own internal folks that they would do what they said that they would do and be able to take care of their peace. And that's the one thing that I think it's been so strange um, during this incident is not being able to see each other, but let's make it work. This is a common thread that has come up in my previous interviews, and that is being able to switch and adjust um, and adapt um, immediately. How How do you engage community in the virtual space? You 
are dealing with populations used to maybe meeting up in a church, or maybe they're used to meeting up in a particular park or a, a community center. So I'll tell you this is that I've had to rely on my community leaders, on my mm. partners that are boots on the ground, because I'll tell you, we are a group of 18 emergency managers that serve 1.2 million residents. I've had to rely just like I, just like I did before COVID is I always relay my mission to my partners and they carry on my mission as part of their work. I I craft the message and I send it to my partners that are connected with communities through WhatsApp. So when I had to stop doing the day-to-day programming, I was able to rely on my leaders to say, hey guys, when you're going out to the food banks, when you're going out to disperse meals and different kinds... Don't forget to ask them to subscribe to the alert system. Mm-hmm. So see, that's the the beauty of partnership is that I cannot be in 1.2 million spaces all at once. <laughs> yeah. I want to switch to looking forward. I want to switch to looking forward. America has been criticized for the way that it's been dealing with the COVID pandemic. Uh, we now have hit the 210 thousandth person who has died as a result of a lot of different things. I I recognize that early on you said that you wanted to serve your country after you saw what happened with 9-11. I think a lot of people share that same sentiment. But how how have your views changed from that young person who wanted to serve her country? Now, here we are in this pandemic so many years later. The fact that I see first responders day in and day out going out and not just not just our, you know, police and and our fire department, but our public health, our volunteers, anyone that is going out and providing a service, it is a testament of the resiliency that we have in this country, of the faith. And really of the magnitude of passion that exists behind every person that is working behind the scenes and are committing themselves to to give their skills to be able to overcome this crisis. Mm-hmm. I see all these structures and all these things that we have put into place all these years since 9-11 to see it in the works now, to see yeah. every level of government and every level of every industry really has had to shift their way of work, look at themselves as neighbor to neighbor and act on their humanity because it's not it's not that we're getting rich in local government or any other <laughs> industry, really. It's it's the passion that is driven behind the reason why we do the work that we do. I'm really glad again that people like you are doing that kind of that kind of work so selflessly and reflecting in the last six, seven months, what has been the greatest lesson about leadership that you have learned? as a community engagement manager? As leaders, we have been able to pause and reflect on 
the voids, the gaps, the lessons learned, and we've been able to act and say, okay, if there is a second wave, what can we do better? Where are the gaps? And be able to take that criticism and be able to learn from our mistakes. And this is how we will make it better. And then the other piece is is the work that's being done behind the scenes. I speak to folks such as Leslie Luke, who's the deputy director at the Office of Emergency Management with County of Los Angeles. He is making sure that folks like me and that look like me are at the table and that are being considered and that diversity and inclusion is a topic of conversation Mm -hmm. because that is what one thing that not just emergency management, but every single profession needs to look at themselves and say, does your group or your team reflect the community they serve? Mm -hmm. And if they don't, that conversation needs to happen. Do you remember what that was like for you working at the jewelry factory? I just want to be accepted. That's the thing. So whatever they do to me doesn't matter. When I speak, they couldn't understand what I say. And when they speak, most of what they're talking about, I don't understand. (laughs) When they ask you, they said, oh, can I get some pack from there? So they mean carton boxes. So when they really show it to me, I say, oh, you mean the cartons? They say, yeah. I said, okay, cartons, all right. I was just grateful for everything that I'm useful because I wasn't thinking that anybody would hire me for any kind of job at all. Because I'm black, I'm a foreigner, I don't speak the same way they speak. I thought nobody wants me, though nobody will accept me. But I got accepted, so. If you know anyone from New England, you know that we have an aversion to pronouncing our R's. There's the Pak, the Ba, and the Yad. As English speakers, we know that there's lots of room for messages to get lost in translation. And this is what I love about Grelia's work. She ensures that whatever is going on in the world, whatever information people need to know, it gets into the hands of the people who need to know it. And she makes sure that they can actually understand what it means. Leaders like Dr. Tena Vanima and Grelia and my mom are filling the gaps. They are adapting. They're shifting with the times so they don't get caught off guard. They listen to other people and provide clear communication because they know lives are at stake. They show up because they are committed to doing their jobs. Not surprisingly, the attacks of 9-11 came up in each one of these three women's stories. Understandably so, there's lots of parallels to COVID-19 emotionally and psychologically. But from a policy perspective, the reasons of the 9-11 attacks and the fallout of COVID-19 are tied to how America chooses to interact with the rest of the world and how we ourselves live out the values we say we want others to practice. We join trade deals because we want American businesses to thrive globally. 
we pay into organizations like NATO and the UN because we know that America cannot send troops to every single corner of the earth. We send people to other countries to monitor elections because we believe voting should be fair and free. The motivations behind these foreign policy decisions should also be the same motivations that encourage trust in institutions here in the United States. Do we trust the scientists and the healthcare leaders like Dr. Vanima? Do we have enough faith in community managers like Gelia to show up when there's a catastrophe? Can we rely on nursing assistants like my mother to keep our loved ones alive when we're not allowed to feel or touch them? Can I trust that our justice system sees my four black brothers and I as people who matter when we are wronged? I believe we can. If each of us does our part and lead from where we are, just like our three guests. If you're not sure or what that looks like, start by wearing a mask. Turn on the emergency alerts on your phone. And finally, exercise your right to vote because behind every single policy is a person. I'd like to thank Columbia University for inviting this podcast to be part of their Alumni Leadership Week and our featured guests, Dr. Tanner Finima, Grelia Steele, and my mother, Phoebean Akiwande, for being a part of this episode. I'd like to thank Lacey Healy of Ink Stick Media and the creator of Things That Go Boom, Mandy Kwan, and Danielle Cornwall, who provided much-needed production assistance. To my little brother, Rotimi Akinasosu, thank you so much for helping me get mommy set up for this recording. And a special shout out goes to Francisco Benzgome and Eduardo Vargas, who are a part of the Diversity and National Security Network and their efforts to acknowledge exceptional Latinx foreign policy leaders such as Grelia Steele. And last, but certainly not least, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode and all that I have to share. Check out other episodes of What in the World wherever you listen to podcasts. Certainly visit us at our website at whatintheworldpodcast.com. Follow us on social media at WITWpod. And I will take a good old school email at whatintheworldpod2017 at gmail.com. This has been another episode of What in the World. Was there ever a time you didn't want to go to work? Because of this thing? No, because I'm committed to my job. I do my own part. Everybody is doing their own part towards all these things that is going on. I'm a somebody of faith. I believe that if I'm going to catch it, if God wants me to catch it, <laughs> I can prevent it all I want. It will happen. Yeah, I'm afraid, but hey, that will not stop me from working or from doing what I'm supposed to do.